All right, what is going on, everybody? How are we doing? I hope you're having a lovely week so far. Hope you are creating, whether you're tweeting, podcasting, vlogging, whatever your poison is, put something out there into the world. The world will be a better place for it. Our guest today that we are learning from is none other than Adam Ryan, CEO of Workweek. So this is a special episode for me. Adam is the person that I report to at Workweek. Him and his co-founder, Becca, convinced me to join the company. And it's a pretty cool company, guys. I'm biased, obviously, but Workweek is powered by creators. So subject matter, we're all about helping creators build, grow, and monetize with audio. And Adam's a creator himself. So despite running Workweek, he also writes a weekly newsletter called Perpetual. And he hosts his own podcast, Media Moves, where he talks about predictions in the media industry with some of the smartest minds in the space. So I'm sure some of you listening are not full-time creators. You're probably an aspiring creator who has another full-time job. And so this podcast is a real window into what it's like for someone who is running a busy company and creating and doing it consistently, because that's such an important piece for us as creators is having that consistency, showing up episode after episode, season after season. In this episode, you're going to learn some pretty juicy insights. Number one is the difference between reactive attention and active attention. There's different kinds of attention and these different types determine the kind of content that we want to put out and the kind of mediums that we use with our audiences. The second thing that you're going to pick up is why you should write for your past self and why that often entails writing what is obvious to you and non-obvious to other people, although that's the thing that people miss. We're also going to tap into how to create depth with content. Adam is a big believer that depth is where the gold is buried. And there's a formula you can use to do that, which is entwining opinion and your bias with data to create deep content. We go into that a little bit later. And then finally, we'll also talk about this really interesting concept called identity capital. And if you're in your 20s, there's a great book recommendation that we will drop about halfway through the show, which goes into this idea of identity capital and how you can find your own capital as a creator. Because ultimately, people aren't going to call you unless you're known for something. And so you have to build up that capital very proactively. Adam is an absolute joy to speak to and listen to. I am sure you're going to enjoy this episode. Thanks a bunch for tuning in. I really appreciate it. And without further ado, please enjoy. Hey, real quick before we jump into today's episode, I just want to tell you about another show from the Workweek Podcast Network called Make Work Fun. This is a show for creators by creators. If you're listening to Subject Matter, you're an aspiring creator too, wanting to build with audio. Make Work Fun takes that a step further. We get into the shoes and perspectives of other creators who are building in the business space and dig into how they're having fun along the way. We've got a ton of amazing guests lined up for season one, and I hope you enjoy it. Check it out. Just search Make Work Fun wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll be able to listen. Now let's get back to the show. Adam, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you on the show. Ben, I've been looking forward to this for a long time, longer than you realize. <laughs> Likewise, I think this is going to be uh, be a lot of fun. Well, I think it, a good place to start would be a little bit about the work that you've been doing. So you're CEO of Workweek, very much operating the business, but at the same time, what's interesting is you're also a creator. You have the, your newsletter called Perpetual, and then you have your podcast called Media Moves at the same time. Talk to us about how you 
started becoming a creator. You haven't always been a creator. What was that first moment like and how have you got to where you are now? I've always enjoyed writing. My parents would tell a story that when I was like 10 years old, uh, my dad and I would play wiffle ball. Uh, I'm not sure if they have that in uh, across the pond, but... Uh, that hasn't made it over here yet, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, it's just a plastic ball uh, that looks like a baseball, but it has uh, holes in it that allows you to like spin it faster and throw it. And it's basically like a backyard baseball kind of game. And we would play and I would take notes of what happened and we would be fake players. So like I would be my favorite base, even though it's just two of us, my team was like my favorite three baseball players or four baseball players, whatever. And then afterwards I would go write a actual newspaper story of like what happened in the game. And I remember my dad telling me like, Oh, I think you're going to be a journalist. And I always enjoyed the art of writing, particularly persuasive writing. And I did it a little bit in high school and in college I studied history. So I wrote all the time. And, and so it, it wasn't something that I felt uncomfortable doing, but when it came to, when I moved into my professional life, I just never could find the time um, or I made the excuse not to find the time. And I think one of the biggest things for me was overcoming imposter syndrome of like, people don't want to hear this. Eh, it's only my thoughts. And with work week, I knew that others feel that way and I needed to show that I could get over it um, so others could see that they could get over it. And this idea of going from operator to essentially like analyst is like our playbook. And I wanted to, to do it to myself and, and push myself to be uncomfortable. Well, first of all, thank you for helping other people overcome their imposter syndrome, because I think that's something a lot of people listening will resonate with is putting your ideas out there for the first time is kind of scary. Workweek launched about six months ago. What's that journey been like for you as a creator and stepping into your own? Ups and downs. You know, I think the first like four story, the four newsletters, my newsletters are deep dive essays that are more like philosophical in nature, typically. And the first like four or five, I was like, so ready because they they were like things I've thought about for like five years. Right. And it was like, oh, this is great. And it was like I was worried about hitting the deadline and doing the deliverable. Uh, and then like all of a sudden, I'll never forget, like late January, I called Becca, my co-founder, and was like, the fuck am I going to write about? And like there's a whole nother aspect of creativity that comes with it. And like that's been challenging. And that's really where you get stuck in your own head. And like it's really easy to be like, huh. I just don't think people are going to find that interesting enough and like this. And through that six months, I've started to build some some playbooks up to help me overcome that um, with one of the biggest obvious takeaways is don't be afraid of the obvious. Not enough people actually like spend their day thinking about whatever you're going to create about. And so even if it seems like blatantly obvious to you that you're like, everyone probably knows this, this isn't that exciting. I found success of like actually writing that and people are like, Hey, I did know that, but like, thank you for the reminder. Or like, I didn't think about it that way. And sometimes that's the easiest way to keep your consistency. I would also couple what's obvious to you with as a, the, the way to find what's obvious for you is to find what you care about and go very deep on that. I was just uh, listening to a conversation with Jen Sargent, who's the CEO of Wondery, Amazon's production studio. 
And she was saying that routinely they see the podcast hosts who are passionate about something and have some credibility somewhere outperform major celebrities who have huge followings already. And the difference is passionate. It's what you care about. And so I would probably wager that these obvious truths for you in media are the things that have been percolating in your brain for a while. And that's because it's an industry that you really care about and you have credibility in. So that's what allows it to feel obvious. I actually, the first time I ever wrote professionally was in 2014. Uh, I was at Spiceworks and I like figured out how to basically work like five hours a day and have a lot of success. And so it was just like a sales role. And I, I but it was, you had to be in the office from, I was in the office 7.30 to five every day. So like, what the fuck do you do? Um, and so I started writing on LinkedIn. And at the time, I didn't know anything about media. And I look back and read a lot of those. And I now ask myself, like, what would that person want to find out? What would like that person want to know um, in some ways of like, I was ambitious. I like my goals were high. I was having success in media. I knew I loved the industry like the second that I got into it. Um, and I started writing about it and I read those pieces and it's like they weren't horrible, but they had no depth to them because I had no experience. And so I think what I like to like focus on now is like, OK, the difference of me from 2014 to 2022 is is depth. And that's how, you know, I talk about replaceability a lot with content. And I want to be able to write something that like, it's hard to replace. And when I was writing in 2014, it was not, it was just basically regurgitating Digiday articles. There's definitely something to the idea that depth is where the gold is buried. And if you, if you go really shallow and create a hundred pieces yeah. of content that take you 10 minutes versus one piece of content that takes you 10 hours, that one piece has got so much more longevity to it. And the the stat that I come back to with podcasting is about 75% of all podcasts never make it past 10 episodes. And part of that is because they're not very thoughtful. Whereas if you actually do research and you put effort into your show, like a friend of mine uh, called Raul Vega, he is uh, Hans Zimmer's uh, sampler. And he did a show called Rose Drive. And he put a bunch of effort into the sound design, into the acting, into the scripting, and that show's got well over half a million downloads and counting. And he's still only done one season of it because people keep coming back to that show. So it goes to show that quality in your craft, whether that's a podcast or in a newsletter, gives you so much more longevity over time. Yeah, I mean, I Mario Gabriel uh, is, I think, one of the most prolific creators uh, right now out there. And, and he said on my podcast that he writes for his pieces to last five years. And that is a huge bar to set. There are such few pieces of content that can withstand five years. For me, I aim for like six to 12 months, and I still think it's difficult. But the only way to do that is actually have depth. And that's the combination to me of intertwining opinion and bias with data. Those are the things that can withstand time. If you just write like news or kind of higher level pieces or something you know, shallow on an opinion side, it's not as good. But when you use data to back up your philosophical beliefs, no one can argue with that, that, hey, at that time, that was incredibly relevant. And it still may be relevant five years from now. Totally. Something you said earlier is the, the difference between you and 2014 Spiceworks, Adam, is this depth if you were to give yourself one piece of advice now for that version of you when you were just starting out, 
What piece of advice would you take back and share with that version of yourself? Listen to learn. Just like listen. I don't think sometimes people realize that when you're in your early 20s and you put yourself in a position to be next to people incredibly smart, it's easy to almost like try to, especially if you're ambitious, it's easy to try to like compete with them. Be like, oh, I want to be them. and I want to beat them in 10 years. But instead, have the mindset of like, I just want to listen and learn from them. And if you take all of that in, you're doing more than I guarantee most of those people did at that age, and you will be ahead. To me, that was it. And then the other one is it's really easy to be the big fish in a small pond. And if you're you know, a successful, let's say mid-20-something-year-old and you've had a couple of years success, it's easy to go kind of become a big, big fish in a small pond. And I think that plays into your growth and development of like having leadership roles, maybe before you're qualified, et cetera. But don't only have that attitude. Put yourself in a public company, put yourself in a big company where like you are tiny. You may be talented, but like you are a tiny fish in this huge ocean because it teaches you it's a different mindset. And I think that balance is really critical. I see a lot of people come out of their 20s where they've only worked at tiny startups and stuff, and they've always been the person. And you lose a lot of insight and perspective when you haven't had that uh, that bigger view. I see a parallel here as well for creators who are trying to build with audio, which is when you go from being a solo freelancer, a one man or one woman army, if you will, where you're doing everything start to finish. And believe me, I've been there. When you start to get help and you start to delegate, that is a completely different mindset. You're saying essentially that someone else is going to help me build this baby together. And that can be very scary. I remember delegating for the first time my uh, copy in my ghostwriting business. I had this mindset for many months that I'm not going to delegate because I don't want the quality to go down because I have to do it. And by learning to let go, I realized, number one, there's better copywriters out there than me that can deliver this. But number two, this scales my time and I can put out more content, more podcasts as a, as a result of that. So similar parallel, I think, from being a big cog to, to being a small cog. One of the biggest advantages is just being humble. I highly recommend if you're in your 23, the defining decade, it's my, I've read the book a million times. It's like one of my favorite reads and you are searching for your identity capital uh, in your twenties. And most of the time people have an identity crisis because they don't have their identity capital, but actually the way you really build identity capital is recognizing like that you're not the best at everything that you're not you can give other people work. You can like help other people be successful in the areas that you're not successful or as successful. And that's how you build identity capital is like a way of like someone being like, wow, they're really good at this thing. And they have like the pride to be able to like in confidence to say like, Hey, this is, I can help you out. And you can't have identity capital unless people view you a certain way. And you only can be viewed certain ways if you delegate. And so I'm a big believer in that. My mentor took me under her wing when I was 24 years old and was like, I suck at this. Will you help me? And I was like, yeah, but I mean, what the fuck do I know? And I was like, wow, I get it. I'm good at Excel and math and that's a skill set." And she did not have it. And I helped her. And then all of a sudden my, my career was benefited greatly because of that relationship. And how do you think that having found that identity capital now and having a pretty sure idea of it, how has that impacted 
the way that you show up as a creator and the kind of content you take and or create and in the philosophical stances that you take? I didn't get my identity capital until I went through the hustle. At Under Armour, I thought I was getting it and I, I totally missed. But what what it actually is as for creators, like knowing your values is number one. You have so many choices to make uh, as a creator. What do you cover? How do you cover? What do you write? Who do you write with? Who do you write for? And then like your opinion, people want to hear from you. And it's easy when you don't actually know your own values to like waver and jump all over the place. And you'll never actually build your audience if you don't know who you are. And so for me, it had nothing to do with experience or depth going through that. It was identifying what, what do I value? And over time, what you value comes through your work. And that's relatability to those that are similar to you. I love that line that you'll never build your audience if you don't know who you are, which suggests that before you can do any kind of output, it always starts with with inner work and, and understanding your perspective. Something that I'm really curious about with your, your perspective is the way that you view yourself in media. You have said before that you view yourself as an outsider. You've never lived in New York. You didn't study journalism at a major school. You're based in Austin. That's where Workweek's headquarters is. You have a very unconventional position in the media ecosystem. How do you think that affects the way that you view media and then also the kind of content that you create as a creator? You know, I started my career in sales and did advertising sales for six years, essentially five years before jumping into a lead, uh, you know, more broad leadership role that covered editorial. And that also is not normal or as normal. Um, and so when I think about that, though, uh, I constantly am like, well, I don't know what others think here, right? Like I question myself all the time and I don't know, like if, if I, I I've written things and I'm like, it's like, everyone thinks this is really stupid, but like, actually what I've realized is that most people, whether you're like, have the traditional background or not, they think those things, but being naive is a huge advantage especially early in your career, because you're unafraid to question things. And then it pushes you to be more innovative. And I have been incredibly naive. I'm still naive in this space. And when I bring people on my podcast as a creator, I'm like, I'm like, wow, I'm going to ask this question that I think is so dumb um, because I'm naive. And what it does is it totally brings a new angle to a question that they've never been asked before. And that to me is a, is a big advantage for being an outsider and not having the traditional lens that most people build a media company with. I think there's also something powerful there to having a beginner's mind consistently and not seeing yourself as the expert. I think it's very easy when you get to a leadership position to, because of the, the authority that that bestows to say, I know everything or I feel like I'm the expert and actually taking a step back and, and saying, I am going to be a beginner here. This is this is new for me. And as creators, as your podcast grows, you get to know your audience, always being willing to test, innovate, scrap things if they're not working. That's what keeps you lean and, and flexible and, and able to keep growing. Yep, exactly. So something else I thought was interesting that you hit on is this idea of uncomfortable truths. Could you speak a little bit more about why you thought it was important for you to have a place to share your own uncomfortable truths in media? 
I think the world is just sometimes like so scared to tell the truth and they're scared because it can make them look bad. They can have consequences. And also it's a privilege to be able to speak the truth. If you're a person of color or a woman and you like speak the truth, like you put yourself at a disadvantage and you already are disadvantaged enough. Right. Uh, and so as somebody that feels like they've have the privilege to be able to tell the truth, I think it's a responsibility of mine and also a differentiator as a creator to be able to say the things that like are uncomfortable to say. And to do that, sometimes you get people pissed at you to do that. Sometimes you get people are like, Oh my God, I'm so happy. You finally said that, right? You get the whole range of a bit, but I think to move an industry forward, which is really what, my overall intention with Workweek is, is to like rewrite the narrative of what media can be. You have to identify like what the uncomfortable truths are. And yeah, that doesn't mean like when, and when I say things like, Hey, advertising is a shitty business, uncomfortable truth in media. I, I make a lot of people mad. And then they're like, well, Workweek has advertising. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not saying it's like something you shouldn't do. I'm saying it's like a shitty business to invest in, to like count on to scale, like, and your perspective and perception matters there. But like that to me is, is something that I wish more people had the courage and the privilege to be able to say, or the uncomfortable truths of their industry, because if they do, they can really change the narrative, particularly if their voice is loud enough. And, and that's something that I've taken pretty seriously over the last six months. Reminds me a lot of how a lot of great products are formed, which is you often hear founders saying that I started this company because I was just solving a problem that I faced and there was no solution out there. And similarly with content, if there's no one speaking about this thing and this, this is just kind of itching at you, as you say, for example, advertising is a shitty business to be in. For me with podcasts, like it's hard to engage with my audience. It's hard to hit with my listeners. That irks me. That's something that I can talk about. That's something that I can build solutions for. And it's kind of our, our duty as creators to figure out what those, uh, what those uncomfortable truths are. Now, you have two ways of kind of talking about these truths. You have your newsletter, Perpetual, where you do these deep dives, as, as you've said. And you also have your podcast, Media Moves, where you talk to other media operators in the space and understand their perspectives and get predictions on what's coming up. And you use this framework of newsletters being push and podcasts being pull. Can you explain how you think about this push-pull framework to our listeners? Yeah, so it's, a, it's an old framework that actually, like a long time, like uh, four or five years ago, people would compare Facebook news feed as push, and they called newsletters pull. And the concept at the time was essentially like, as no one wants to be pushed anything necessarily, like it's not something that you accept. But when something, when someone pulls something in, they want it. They like are proactively engaging in it. And, you know, when you compare the news feed to a newsletter, there is more pull on a newsletter, right? Like they're opting in, they're reading it, they're, they're absorbing it, they're saying, give it to me. Where news feed is just like, here, take it, take it, take it, take it. Um, sure. And that was an advantage. But then if you kind of start to look at podcasts and compare it to newsletters, newsletters are way more push, right? Like you, you kind of have this, the tension that 
is a little bit all over the place. You get a lot of emails. You kind of sign up without thinking about it. And you don't even know, sometimes you have you have 12 words to know the context of a 3,000 word email. Like you actually don't know what it's about and what to expect. And so you're just like pushing this information, hoping that people absorb it. And it does work, right? Like it pushing is not a terrible thing, particularly if you're pushing something that's valuable. But with podcasts, it's a whole different feel because these people actually have a lot of context. Show notes average like 300 words. You normally like have a format and framework that you know that's coming. You're choosing as a user, you're pulling that podcast into you and saying, I want to be a part of this. And engagement because of that is better. I would all day long, if I want to build a relationship with one person, if I want one person to love my work and believe in who I am, I'm going to have them listen to 10 episodes of my podcast before I have them read 10 editions of my newsletter, because there's just way more of that relationship pull uh, that I, I appreciate. And that's when I think about my newsletter, I use it to push my beliefs on folks in many ways, because they don't know what's coming. And it's my opportunity if they do engage, which, you know, if you're killing it, 50% of people open it, right? Like, it's not that, like, you're not absolute. And then how many people actually read it? Like, you're not getting incredible engagement on newsletters, but it's a great way to push your thoughts onto folks. With a podcast, I think it's a great way to pull people into your personality and like have them know who you are and to have them fall in love with the character that you represent as a creator. I love that. I think it's also worth keeping in mind that the synergy between a newsletter and a podcast for anyone who's thinking about it or anyone who has one can go both ways. So with you, you are using the newsletter to push your beliefs and then the podcast pulls them in deeper once they have had a chance to read them. And you've discussed ideas from Perpetual on media moves before. So there's very much a content flow that goes that way. That can also be reversed. So one of our creators and friends, Joe Sweeney, has a podcast called Just Raised. And Joe will interview founders on Just Raised talking about interesting technology and business models. And that then informs his newsletter. So for him, the podcast is almost more push where he's pushing out ideas and stories. And then the newsletter is more pull where he goes deeper with the, the analysis. So I think they are, they're interchangeable. That's speaking about the content. What really is the intention behind the push-pull thing is, though, is like active attention versus, versus reactive attention, right? And I think what newsletters have started to become is reactive attention, like a news feed, um, where podcasts is still proactive attention. So like it's not just about ideas put in the content. It's also about the type of attention. And what podcast has right now is that like very rarely, if ever, does someone be like, huh, I don't remember why I'm listening to this podcast right now. Like that's just not a thing that happens with newsletters. It happens a lot. People are like, huh, when did I subscribe? To I haven't seen this in like two weeks. Huh? Right. There's such a difference of an intention. And this is going back to a different framework that I've written about in my newsletter, but intention versus attention, right? Like attention is news feeds. Intention is like actual valuable audiences being like, I intend to listen to you. And podcasts right now, I just think are, are one of the best ways to get intentional attention. That's a great prompt for people to to think about the different kinds of attention that you are you're getting with your audience. All right, let's go into our last segment, which is the lightning round. I've got some quick questions for you. You got to say the first thing that comes to your head. You ready? All right. Yep. 
Okay. First of all, what is one piece of software or hardware that you can't live without? Superhuman. The brilliant email experience. What is your favorite podcast that you're listening to right now? Uh, just raised. There we go. What is one piece of advice that you would give to an aspiring creator just starting out? Focus on consistency more than anything else. And last but not least, what's the most fun that you have when you work? Being with our team by far and, and getting to learn from them every single day. That's a great note to wrap up on. This has been a really fun interview, Adam. If people want to keep up with you online and follow you and your ideas, where can they do so? Uh, on Twitter, I'm Adam R-Y underscore in. Whoever owns Adam Ryan on Twitter, I'd love to buy it from you. Uh, <laughs> but Adam R-Y underscore in uh, on Twitter. And uh, if uh, anybody ever wants to shoot me an email in chat, uh, Adam at workweek.com. Fantastic. And don't forget to check out his podcast, Media Moves, as well, if you are in the media space. All right, Adam, thanks a bunch. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Ben. Appreciate it. 